to this call. It's like Skype has moved on without. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Add to call, John. He's and I just hit record already, so. And I'm gonna record as well, so we'll have the backup. Uh, right, that's what we do here. Absolutely. We learn from our mistakes. We've had a few. We've had a few mishaps. <laughs> <laughs> All that radio gold floating out there in the ether. I blame alcohol, but you know. No. Hey guys, Rodney. Hey. hey. How you doing today? Oh, I don't know. I'm uh, I'm um, coasting on painkillers, sitting in a parked car in the rain. No shit. Ah, how you guys doing? Better than that, I think. What, yeah. what happened? What I well, the power, well, the power's out in the house um, for re- because of a, a crazy thunderstorm last night, and I just twisted my neck up funny. So um, um, they came, to, <laughs> so um, they came together to bring me here. Well, we certainly don't want you to be in a uh, box of paint for the next uh, however minutes we talk, but. Um, you feel I'm like you're. Be, I'll, be, I'll be in one. I'll be in one anyway. This will be a distraction. There you go. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, just in general, and thank you especially for uh, joining us in, uh, you know, rough shape um, or rough <laughs> right. situation. Yeah. Um, Don't worry about it. And uh, John, are you with us as well? I'm right here. Hey, John. Good to hear your voice, man. Did I did I see your uh, your lady put on Facebook? Did you guys get the coronavirus? Yeah, uh, the entire family got. Uh, we tested positive uh, ten days ago, and we're sick for a week. Jeez. How you feeling right. now? We'll see. Are you guys all feeling all right? I mean, like the major it was like a, a flu kind of sensation with like lingering fatigue and. Uh, like heavy mucus flow. <laughs> All right, well. But, you know, uh, no, just part of the uh, grand uh, coronavirus mega ritual here. <laughs> well, uh, all right, does everyone, does everyone feel um, ready to kind of jump in? I don't, I know both of you guys are not feeling great. Everyone comfortable as can be. Yeah, I'm good. Cool. Yeah. I, if you don't mind, Bill, I just want to, there's something I want to kind of start with. I realized I wanted to start with. Um, Yeah, perfect. Perfect. So, um, last night, uh, my lady and I rewatched Room 237, just kind of like prime for this this conversation today. And, uh, Bill, I think we spoke a few weeks ago. I told you we had a conversation. This would have been always record number. Actually, number 37, so 200 episodes ago. This is going to be episode 237. It would have been 200 episodes ago. You and I had a conversation, and we talked about the whole, like, subliminal bears uh, idea in The Shining, all the, is that, like, shown, um, shown fella and all that sort of stuff, right? And there's a thing you say in that episode where you mention the yellow Shining poster and that there's a bear on that yellow, the classic yellow shining poster. And how many years ago, 200 episodes ago, we recorded that, and man, I did not see it. 
and I have not seen it in all these probably 15 years since. <laughs> and then a few weeks ago, I was listening to this really old episode, uh, and with the assistance of some marijuana and just like 10 minutes of my time of like actually looking at it, taking the time to actually look, I saw the fucking bear. And now that I've seen the bear on that yellow poster, I can't unsee the bear. Uh, so I want to give just this update of it took 15 years, but I've seen it. Uh, and I want to start this conversation off with of the four people on this call in room 237, there's that whole Jay Widener thing of that airbrushed uh, Kubrick in the clouds. Has anyone in the eight years since this film has come out, have any of you seen Sammy Kubrick's face in the clouds? Yeah, I uh, I don't know if that's Jay being a trickster and that he's sharpening your lens that you look so hard at that and say that's bullshit. But you're like, but I can agree with the other stuff, uh, but I don't see uh, Kubrick in the clouds for sure. I yeah, thought I, I saw where thought like and I even made, did a, a, a kind of a jokey uh, KDK 12 post where I. I photoshopped in Kubrick's face where I thought Jay w was talking about the cloud, the face in the clouds, but I don't know. <laughs> it's clouds. What are you going to do? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I, there's a face that I, I think I can see, but I, I don't think it's what Jay is talking about because uh, one apologies, I've actually not seen Room 237 probably in about three years now. Um, but um, I think he says it's only there for one frame. And what I see that looks most like him, you know, is more or less there for the duration. But, um, you know, one thing I love about one thing I love about it, you know, is both the way he describes it gives us time to sit on it long enough for people really to try the hardest to see. But, I mean, often this kind of stuff has been compared to, you know, seeing pictures in the clouds. And in, you know, this moment, you know, Jay kind of makes that idea, you know, pretty literal. So he was, he was like, it was like a Captain Howdy kind of thing? I'm not sure what... Yeah, I'm, not sure how you mean that. I'm, I'm talking about the uh, the in the Exorcist. There are these there are subliminal like oh, flashes yeah. oh, yeah. and memes. Like there's like there's kind of like a made up face. Looks like a member of Kiss, and they call him Captain Howdy. I mean, if it's it's much more like obvious than than. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I've totally seen that. And like recently, uh, there's a there's a new um, Exorcist doc. You know, that's all. Um, that's all. Um, freaking talking about it and there's some, some new ones that he added in like the later restoration um like the way jay talks about it it sounds like he was doing something like that right and i think jay says it's only there for a frame if yeah but if anyone if anyone's going to catch a frame it's going to be this crowd right yeah, <laughs> yeah. and we play it back you know we, we play it i back, mean like you know, can, a frame at a time in the course of the movie oh. nothing jumps up no flicker there's yeah unless you know true subliminals you know as they were described you know like in the 50s 
involved a secondary projection machine that could, you know, that could flash drink Coke or what have you for like one thousandth of a second, even while the movie was was carrying on at one twenty fourth. Oh. If my memory of like the um, apparatus that they described in Subliminal Seduction um, is accurate. Well, remember how in um, Fight Club um, he discusses the little, uh, I think it's the little circle on the top right corner of the film that indicates when to switch reels. Am yeah, I they call it a cigarette. It? They call it a cigarette burn. And I think that when I saw that movie, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, I've seen that. It seems to me a thousand times, but I'd never um, compartmentalize it into something. Uh, that was uh, consistent because I don't think I recognized it or saw it a bunch of times or saw it every time. But then when it was framed like that and said, this is what that is, and they show you an example of it, it all flooded back to me. And I was like, gosh, yeah, I, I saw that a lot as a kid in the theater, and I just never uh, processed it as something meaningful or something that was supposed to happen. Um, yeah, the way the projectionist is looking out for it, who, know, who, who knows about it, knows what it's for knows where it's going to happen and you know a minute or so before it's about due you know he starts scanning that part of the frame ready to switch reels such an archaic um <laughs> piece of technology but so uh impactful for the 20th century uh it's something that our children will never see right i mean i i don't think we ever see it anymore there is there's no reels anymore, right? Unless you go to like a special screening. <laughs> Excuse me. Well, that reminds me. Um, there's this idea of like the things that are flashed in there, the things that are potential mistakes. Also in room 237, there's the discussion of um, the moving chairs, right? This idea of uh, the chairs, the chairs there, then you cut away to Wendy's face. When you cut back, the chair's gone. And there's the discussion of, is this a uh, continuity error or is this uh, an allusion to, uh, you know, moving furniture and that cl kind of classic seance or uh, poltergeist sort of experience, right? But it made me think of the 2001 A Space Odyssey. We have that classic blue cashmere sweater. I'm sure you guys all know what I'm talking about. What's that? Uh, the blue cashmere sweater. In 2001 A Space Odyssey, do you know this one? Wow, I, guess I don't. I don't think I do. Oh, wow. Okay, so there is, you know, the uh, scene on the space station. It's the Hilton space station, and Haywood Floyd is talking to, like, the Russian scientists. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay, so they're all sitting on those, like, really cool red mod chairs. And there's a lady who one of the ladies has a blue sweater draped over the back of her chair. And then you cut to another shot, and then you cut back, and the sweater is gone. And then you cut back, <laughs> and the sweater is moved. And so it's a very similar thing where there's this like glaring continuity error of this cashmere sweater. Well, Kubrick uh, went in and added. So if you in in the, back in the late '60s, the way the speakers were set up in a movie theater. You had all these different speakers to get your surround sound, essentially. But there was one other speaker that was basically all the way in the back of the theater that was set up like a basically a PA system. And 
he put this and I just say like I I got a like a Blu-ray rip, a digital rip, and there's like you know seven audio tracks on this DVD, and there's one audio track that it's still it's still set up how it originally was. So there's it's two hours of nothing on this audio track, and there's only thirty seconds of audio on this whole track that was set for this one specific speaker in the theater. As if it was coming from the lobby was the idea, Kubrick's idea. And it literally has someone saying, attention, has someone lost a blue cashmere sweater? Please come to the lobby to pick it up. <laughs> and if you That's watch the, yeah, if you watch the movie, you know, on, on a classic, like home, you're watching it on your, on your TV at home, it's just going to be in the mix and you're just going to think, if you even hear it, it just sounds like someone within the space station is making this announcement. But if you were in the original theater, it would have come across as if someone in the real world, you know, someone in for the, the movie theater company itself is announcing to the audience, hey, if anyone who's blue cashmere sweater. So he's again, it's, it's a sort of um, referencing the, the continuity error. I, I don't know if anyone, anyone has any thoughts on what that would mean or just enjoying the playfulness of it yeah i mean it well, sounds just like a self-deprecating joke right that he you know he shot 10 takes of this scene with a sweater in or with a sweater out and then decided that he liked it the other way and then shot another 10 takes and when it came time to cut the scene together used some pieces from before and some pieces from after thinking you know i think quite rightly and um Walter Murch would agree, you know, that that the continuity is less important, you know, than performance, um, you know, in other aspects of the shot, um, you know, then is sort of calling attention to this mistake, you know, and kind of a, you know, kind of a self-deprecating joke on the uh, the announcer. I never heard, I never heard that. That's great. Like a really expensive and uh, <laughs> yes. joke that only maybe he would get. But that's 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 our cue. Yeah. But isn't that scene the first scene where the conspiracy starts to take shape about what's really going on? And that, that's, that, that's that first chess move is the Americans and the Russians. And so it's one of those things that really can't be <clears throat> perceived in a first time pass in a movie theater. Uh, maybe filmmakers would be able to see that because they would have that eye for it, just like only a chess player would notice the. Um, continuity error or as many of us believe the intentional um deception which we know it is um but yeah. It, it yeah well it's like a fake there's the the car there's a fake cover-up going on where they're trying to, where they're intentionally failing to suppress the story of a contagion uh, as a smokescreen for the real story of um of the monolith isn't that why you think we're seeing all those monoliths right now is because maybe a new generation has made that connection and they find that it's pretty funny that there's this same storyline going on. Uh, it's an even more expensive um, joke that would be get, would appreciated by even fewer <laughs> people. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which, you know, that brings me to a good question about um, about the project film 237 um uh one of the main reasons when this episode came up obviously it resonated with the movie and we've uh, talked to you guys and it's been a big part of um 
what the sync book has been about um, uh, is that I wanted to in this call just couple covered a couple of things. One was, you know, the impact of room 237. But I guess before we go into that, when you finished room 237, did you ever have any inclination to do a movie on 2001 in the same vein? No, I don't think I did. I mean, for me, um, that, that would be a movie that is kind of this, the same movie with like sort of on, on a different set. Ah, uh, okay. I can I can see that completely. You know, I and mean, I guess maybe, yeah. And and I remember when we, when Tim Kirk and I, you know, were sort of, um, you know, first exploring The Shining, um, and thinking about the project, there was certainly a point where we asked ourselves, are we using the wrong movie? I mean, because two thousand one certainly is feels more plainly symbolic. And and it feels like more people have spent time trying to solve that mystery, or that's what I would have thought. But as we looked into it, you know, at least in in, in I guess this would have been 2010, you know, 2011. Um, at that time, more people were engaging with The Shining, you know, and um, because The Shining is maybe less of a um, feels like a less important work in a lot of ways you know, like you know even he, he you know there's the story that he just wanted to make a a, a more commercial horror film after a, after Barry Lyndon the idea of finding all these people struggling to um, discover the secrets of the shining is more interesting doing it for for, for that film than 2001 which is plainly about you know, the mysteries of the universe, at least yeah, it was I for think, me. Yeah, I think I, I agree, or I think that's where my thought process was, was that uh, you could have done this with 2001, you could have done this with The Shining, pick, take your pick, because what you were going for wasn't necessarily the specific film, but the, the what do I call it, the, the thought process or the engagement with a Kubrick because film, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wanted it to be, I, I wanted, you know, I, I'm, some of the most satisfying reactions I see are when people saying we should do a 237, you know, about type thing about X, Y, or Z, you know, that it's, that, that it talks about this very active way of engaging, of close reading, you know, of, um, of, of finding meaning and, the Shining happened to be the be, you know the, the most interesting um, example of it when we were start, when we were when we were working on it and also a film who just on a personal level you know I'm just you know I, I just love The Shining so spending all this time looking at it exploring it a frame at a time and from every opposite angle you know it was just a pleasure you know there are other movies that you could maybe spend as much time with that I would have personally have lost interest in, you know, but I never got, but I never got sick of looking around a different corner in the shining. Did you ever think, and this is really just sort of a kind of a 
just a question for a question's sake. Uh, you chose five specific voices. Obviously, John was one of them. Um, was there ever any, and like, probably not, but of do you think a Room 237 sequel could have been made with five new voices? Just as far as, like, could you have gotten content out of that and made it be a, an experience that would have value? Or, again, does it go back to mission accomplished with what you were able to get on film? I, I think I probably could have. I mean, I know when, um, although each person I spoke to, I mean, I have, you know, four times as much stuff sitting on hard drives, you know, than what actually got into the movie. But um, I know my the one time I kind of halfway considered a sequel to 237, the idea was to only do it about that um final black and white party um picture of the um of, of the new year's eve party you know to sort of you know even narrow make the focus you know that much narrower kind of like in blade runner when he's scanning in on the photo and then going into the next and blowing it up and going in and just sort of a deeper dive and sort of showing the fractal nature of what kubrick films really are yeah that's a good way to put it uh, Mr. Ryan. Yeah. How many hours do you think you and Rodney talked uh, in preparation for that movie? And do you feel like um, he captured the best parts of your conversations? Um, I think it was like two, two hours, maybe with a few follow-ups. I mean, there was a happy accident where I moved to Rodney's town midway through the uh, production. <laughs> Oh, that's right. You were in L.A. for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a couple hours. And eight years later, are you, is it just sort of a, a distant memory, a happy uh, time capsule? Or, like, how has that movie impacted your life on a scale of, I don't know, just in your own words? Um... <clears throat> I mean, it, it was, tell you the truth, it kind of blew me away a little bit by, not really by the fact of being in it. I mean, I'd already been an artist and put out records and stuff. and uh, So it kind of dealt with, you know, dealing with the public and all. But, like, I wasn't ready for, like, the comment section uh, <laughs> to come and, like, contact me directly to tell me, like, how bad I was, whatever. <laughs> so uh, that was kind of like the major impact of like, oh, I got to like hide my home address. and um, Really? Be careful who I talk to. Yeah, for well, real. I'm, I'm sorry that was so hard. I was getting, I mean, how would, how would you know? I mean, that's part of it. But I mean, like things changed in the world because of it. Like they don't have comment sections on IMDb anyway. I mean, that was because of Moonlight, but, like, it was building. Uh, and even, uh, we even had uh, Cole Needham, the inventor of IMDb, as a guest at the uh, at the uh, red carpet party for the Hollywood premiere. Remember that, uh, Rodney? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I still see Cole on Facebook now. now yeah. I kind of forget how he <laughs> fell into our into our orbit, I guess, at a, at a festival. Yeah, a moment. 
he was like, hi, I'm IMDb. Who are you? I'm like, oh. Yeah, no, I remember introducing to him to someone at a bar. I'm like, oh, this is my friend Eric. He's a musician, and this is Cole. He invented IMDb. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really great guy. Uh, but I, I guess my, my point is, like, we're the sort of the notion of the audience, the internet audience, uh, came into my life with, like, Major, uh, major force. Well, they uh, came into the world. They came into the world as a major force. So, yeah. can I just speak to? Or I'm, I'm going to sort of just expand, get you guys to expand on that because it would seem in so two, two, three, seven came out in 2011 or 2012, somewhere right in there, right? Yeah, well, I think it was. It, it premiered in 2012, and then um, it kind of did a bunch of festivals. I think it got its its actual release in 2013 okay okay good because not to cut you off but it said january 2012 on wikipedia and i just was like that seems a little bit earlier than when i remember it coming out and i felt like i had tracked it yeah uh, that, that was sundance but just, gotcha. oh, just sundance <laughs> you wouldn't be able, well, <laughs> like a, unless you were in the theater you wouldn't be able to see it yeah yeah until much later so I guess what I want to get to is that um, the, when when this film came out, to me, what was one of the things that was exciting about it was this was one of the first films that, you know, decentralized the, you know, the, the academic side of film criticism, and it it allowed the audience to have a voice. It was almost that was in inherently part of the experience of two three seven, right? That you have these quote-unquote amateur voices i don't you know and i don't mean that in an insulting way um but just to say like you have folks that are from the audience and then stepping into and obviously you have like you know blake moore and might might have some credentials but just to say this idea of the audience getting a voice to be then commenting on the film and that the film is about the audience's voice to a certain extent to have that become essentially go from being one of the exciting things about this film to being one of the sort of scarier notions not only uh, in John's experience but also in the overarching trend of where we're at or where where society went in this sort of social media phenomenon is I just want to see if there's I don't know what what you what do you think of that of how that film and what your intention was there originally and how maybe that gets perverted or well I mean I might say that you know one of the questions you know I wanted the movie to ask you know and you know I'm not smart enough to answer any of these things but I think if I can try to inspire people to you know talk about them I'll call that a victory but that one of the questions I wanted it to ask was like who does who does a movie or, you know or any piece of art belong to and who gets to decide you know what it means you know is it the filmmaker the critics academics you know or or the audience and you know certainly i think we saw that more than anything happen you know with star wars fans right you know especially like that, that you know incredibly um um contentious reaction to um the last jedi um 
I, I mean, I wouldn't say that 237 had anything to do with making it happen, but, you know, perhaps, you know, we were seeing that conversation on a smaller scale in the film, you know, and then it sort of became louder and louder in the years after, um, you know, is kind of maybe the way I kind of see it. I remember, uh, Rodney, I remember you joking at the time uh, that like a big criticism in the movie was like, well, these guys the, that are talking in the movie don't, they don't know what they're talking about. I know what I'm talking about. Here's my idea. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, you know, that was, <laughs> well, and I think that, like that movie and for personally, it was, you know, more inoculated for criticism than, you know, maybe some of some of the other stuff that I've been a part of, you know, because, you know, a big, you know, not, no, you know, because of that, that, that whole idea of who gets to decide, you know, what something means. And if, people are arguing about what 237 means. It's, you know, history repeating is farce. <laughs> um, you know, I would never expect, if I didn't, if, if the film demonstrated that people saw, everybody saw The Shining differently, of it only goes to, um, you know, you, you would only assume that everybody would see 237 differently as well. I think it functions really well with, um, you know, the one scene in The Shining, where the nurse comes to the house to uh, check on Danny and to do um, a little uh, see his reaction because he you know, passed out in the bathroom. And this health professional comes to this house, comes into this room and says, everything's basically fine. You know, she's not really seeing anything out of the ordinary in this little home when everything is completely out of the ordinary. <laughs> You know, yeah. um, like this child is in a bad situation. This woman is in a bad situation. And even though he might be the cause of the trauma, the husband is in a bad. All these people are not in a good place and they need help. And this health professional can't see it. Um, yeah. yeah, as a critique of expertise. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe she would have had a better chance if she actually spent more than, you know, 45 minutes um getting to know, get getting to know the family but um no I, I your point is taken well kind of like a critical response to watching the shining once i remember i carried for 10 years like that's the like why do people think that's a good movie it's it's long it's boring i don't get it but you know that's a 13 14 year old kid who's watched it once and just filed it and said well that's a hunk of shit don't really understand it yeah well i mean um, even even within 237 i think um there were a, a, a couple of the a, a couple of the other commentators didn't like it the first time they saw it, but it does have that strange quality, you know, that siren song of calling you back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and I think a lot of that is, you know, is is based on that final picture that, in some ways, that's presented as it it it, it feels like he's trying to do a rosebud that this is going to explain everything you've seen for the past, you know, two plus hours, but it doesn't do anything like that at all. Um, you know, I compare it, you know, often to the sixth sense, which is, you know, a good little movie, but when you find out that Bruce Willis was a ghost the whole time and the balloon is punctured and the mystery is solved, you know, you're ready to, you're, you're, you're ready to have dinner and, forget about what you just went through. In this one, I know every time I would rewatch re The Shining over the years, 
and that would be kind of a I'm with it, I'm with it, I'm with it, I'm with it. At what point does it start to turn into sand? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. At what point do I give up on it? What point do I just, yeah. Well, can we take maybe, John, that's a question for you. I mean, you've probably spent the most time with this film. Uh, where, do, where are you at at this point? Is this something you're still revisiting regularly? Is this? No, I mean... It's it's on my resume. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I at the time that that Rodney caught me, I was I was just starting to write, and then continued to write about The Shining really intensely for two more years. Uh, then uh, the it just kind of fa- it kind of faded away a little bit. I got I I had a few essays that were maybe too big for me to really handle, and I needed more time to to bring it all together, and then just the you know the bother of of being a worker, a parent took over. <clears throat> but now I'm now I'm now I'm sort of like well. As, as uh, it, it kind of crumbles off, the, what I wrote crumbles off the internet piece by piece, uh, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, I spent three years as a, as a writer, you know, like, I, you know, pass by whatever kind of blocked uh, Jack, Jack uh, Torrance experienced and moved on to a new phase. Uh, Well, that's wonderful because the room 237 ends with the possibility of you being trapped there. It was, um, I was able to anticipate that I would do that. <laughs> but at the time, at the time I, when, I, when I said those words, I was like right at, right at the beginning of, of my, uh, my journey, as it were. Well, John, can I ask, is there, there's one more, as you used the phrase, as what you wrote begins to crumble off the internet. I wonder, as someone who also, like, you were doing uh, KDK12 on Tumblr, and I used to blog on Blogger, but as the internet moved away from even reading that type of stuff, and as a lot of that stuff got deleted by the hosting companies themselves, how much does that sort of factor in? Well, uh, Tumblr was taking down my things for... uh, uh, Community standards uh, type posts. I mean, I I had post uncensored shots of uh, nudity in films and and violence. Uh, so things we had taken down, take they would they wouldn't get the. I mean, they would still be up there in my personal folder, but not readable. And and uh, tell you the truth, no one really cares about Tumblr anymore. So it's it's just you know. It's in limbo. <laughs> well, there's something about, you know, you guys talking about how things hit you differently at different times. You know, uh, Bill, you, you say, hey, first time you watch The Shining, you thought it was a hunk of crap and you moved on. What's interesting is, as a kid, I appreciated The Shining as like a horror movie. I don't know why that, I mean, I, you know, I was raised by a single mom 
maybe there was something that I associated there. I don't know. But, like, that spoke to me as a horror movie, as just an enjoyable experience. However, what may be sacrilege to most people in our sort of corner of things, my first experience with 2001 A Space Odyssey was that I thought it was a boring... Like, I, I remember being really excited. I remember renting 2001 A Space Odyssey getting really excited that this was like me going to watch like an adult film. I really thought like, oh, okay, I'm going to get to see this thing that I've heard about and that I've like, you know, it's going to be super exciting and sci-fi, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I honestly, the first time I watched this one space Odyssey, multiple times I got up off the couch and fast forwarded. Like, okay, like clearly this is like the spaceship has been on this landing pad for five minutes. What's (laughs) happening? And I, you know, fast forward. Oh shit! This continues for another five minutes, and like skipping to see what happens. And now, even totally sober, I could watch that, and those five-minute sequence doesn't feel as long as it did then, right? I'm I'm totally my, what I'm expecting is different. My my sense of time is totally different. Um, and there's something. If, go ahead. Jim. I, I wonder if it isn't just technology though, as well that. Seeing that movie in a cinema, and even seeing it on Blu-ray on a widescreen TV, like it is one of the least suitable movies for you know a VHS standard def experience. Um, That's exactly where my head was going too. Is that um, you know because I I think there's a lot of uh, room to compare uh, Kubrick uh, with Beethoven, right? And in the sense that what might it have been like to experience uh, the ninth in uh, a concert hall when it was first played compared to listening to it on a CD on headphones in a 7-Eleven, you know, or in a commercial, Um, you know, these things are divorced from their bodies. These are meant to be seen in these these rooms with large amounts of people they're designed for that and just like you were talking about with the audio right uh kubrick made use of every single part of the screen but he made use of every single part of the theater because he knew what he was working with um i think you might see that um reflected in the shining with the use of the tv and uh, the TV is not a positive thing in The Shining. And I don't think Kubrick ever saw television as a positive thing. Um, but the funny thing is, The Shining was formatted, you know, was shot in a way to play on TV. You know, that famously, the upper and, uh, the upper and lower part of the frame that gets cropped for widescreen in theatrical was opened up for the um, VHS version. So it people so people didn't get the pan and scan, you know, middle of the frame cropped, or they got, or or, or have to Gerald like in early you know back in the day, people thought that letterboxing you know was sort of a waste of money that they paid for the entire TV image, <laughs> yeah. and they're getting ripped off if the if the, if the if the if their content isn't making use of the whole thing. So, you know, the first, so the four by three VHS in, 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 in DVD fills the whole screen. Um, and I wonder if you might not also have um, had that film, you know, sort of, you know, one thing about t- regular TV is it's formatted, it's, it prefers close-ups 
to you know really wide shots and you know i have an interview with him in like a home in like popular photography where they ask him about um super eight super eight films and if he has any advice for home movie makers and he's like the resolution in super eight is so low and you know the abilities of uh, of, of capturing a vista are so crummy on those kinds of cameras just shoot close-ups of people you love that's the only thing you're going to want and that's the only thing that's going to work god that's perfect from a photographer right a photographer's standpoint um and captured so much yeah. human emotion and, and, and so that's why every once in a while you see a thing in the top or bottom of the frame in those four by three transfers that you're not supposed to see you know like the famously the the shadow of the helicopter ah yes of course yeah because it's cropped out of the you know 16 the 185 version of the film but um you know in the four by threes um you know it's it, it's left in I remember, you know, so yeah, that's it. fascinating. Can you, can you just clarify for me if, so I understand that? When it was shown in the theater, would you have mm-hmm. been able to see the helicopter? No. Only, no, because they have a gate on the projector, sort of a, a, ah. metal, a metal gate that, is, that, has the, that, has the, that has the rectangle of the film format in it, cropping off the top and bottom of the image. I mean, sometimes, like if you ever saw movie feature films projected on 16 as a kid at summer camp or on rain days right sometimes the transfers that they would make of 35 movies to 16 which is a more square kind of shape unless they put in the special metal gate on the projector you would see above and below the top of what was supposed to be in frame so sometimes you would see like a boom mic dropping down off the top of the frame and you might think that the filmmakers fucked up but it was really because it wasn't being projected with in in, in with, with the right crop and gotcha. you know when okay. you're looking through the lens of a movie camera or on the video assist um you know on a set they have all the different rectangles and squares and um markers for there's what you're recording which is which is typically larger than what is supposed to be projected so as long as you know this crew member, this microphone, this can of tab is outside of, you know, the, um, the, the, the aspect ratio that the film's intended to be finished in. It's not always, they don't always get rid of it. Rodney, um, I sort of wanted to ask John real quick. There was a really, sp- I don't know why this post stood out in my mind, but John, you had done a KDK 12 post uh, years ago where you talk about there's this one shot. It's um, like a hallway. I think there's like a glass case on the right-hand side. And there's like this really weird thing where there's kind of like the molding. So the wall isn't like a flat wall. It kind of has this weird molding. And you see this like black curtain that's stuck in this weird space. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, the... Uh... <clears throat> the black curtain that's in the uh, lobby and you can see it in the scene where uh jack is calling calling uh wendy uh tell her he got the job yes and 
And you, you see him on the phone there with, you know, leaning into the, the receptionist area. And in the back background, there's the front exit and it's blocked off by a by a black curtain. Just for that one shot. Yeah, it's these sort of things that like float in the edges of the frame. And I just I wonder it just as again, maybe a clarification when when you would look at things like that we're not talking about these kind of extra edges of the frame and stuff like that we're not talking in the same idea of these uh change in aspect ratios and crops these are things that would wouldn't have been cut off for tv because the tv would have just added extra visual information on the top and bottom so the the uh curtain or whatever it is it would still be there Oh, absolutely. It would still be. I guess what I, my question is, flipping that is, you're not looking at extra information. This, what you're looking at, would have been in all the versions, like the official version, right? It's. I mean, it's. What else was I looking at? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Just uh, making. Sure. But I, me- I remember when I found it, it was like a holy cow. I remember uh, Rodney when we went to see the Kubrick ex- expedition at, at Lacma. I was yeah. discovered that was confusing to anyone who would listen about it. And everyone just sort of giving me like, oh my God, who is this guy, Sarah? <laughs> uh, do you guys remember pop-up video on VH1? Oh, really? sure. That was life-changing for me. And it seems so silly, but I had been uh, a TV kid and I had seen all these videos all these years. And then this show comes on and they're basically, I would say, and I can't really think of anything before that. That was the first time I I considered the idea of Easter eggs or the idea of um, a deeper dive into something that's pop culture or presented Uh as pop culture. And it really just, it it offended me at first because I was like, (laughs) I felt I was TV literate. And then I'm like, I didn't see any of this shit. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, and and it, it definitely uh, developed in my mind of this sense of, well, who is supposed to see this stuff? That's and I great. Think, you know, and, and I think it ultimately boils down again to my age at the time. You know, I'm a 16-year-old kid, a 17-year-old kid. Why would I be that in tune to videos being made by people who are 28, 30, 40, maybe even 50, who are condensing a lifetime of information into a three minute video. Um, I think room 237 excited me or this work that I was doing at that time. There was this validation in room 237. Do you feel like you've seen any other uh, comparable projects out there that have approached the same sort of um, same sort of uh, experience. Well, I mean, I, I, I see a hundred things that you know talk about um, small, obscure, surprising um, details. You know, within movies and and, and other medium, um, you know, their attitude is always a little bit different, and typically they come from. You know, just a single voice, the voice of the, you know, filmmaker, you know, one that one that I, I one that I came across while I was um, in, in 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 production were the um, red letter media feature length reviews of the Star Wars prequels. 
you know, and and those and they were looking at those films with a level of at, at a level of detail, you know, that kind of amazed me. And I, I was teaching an editing class at the time, and I would um, share a couple excerpts from those that I thought were especially um, to the point. But you know, my son, you know, is ten now, and his favorite thing to watch on YouTube is you know more than more 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 than movies or or TV shows or YouTube videos and YouTube videos that you know sort of fill in the gaps between Star Wars movies you know and talk about characters character biographies that of characters I've never heard of and talk about the mechanic the companies that build the spaceships for different you know for 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 different planets and their respective economies I mean they go to this level that I mean is he can speak to the facts of that universe and what in what his studies of, of, of Star Wars culture is so much deeper than anything he's doing in school you know and, and the, the, the amount of research and detail that he's going at you know and beyond you know probably most casual World War II scholars um, absolutely I agree with you a hundred percent you know and it's I, like Return of the Jedi is now the Battle of Endor, you know, which is one of three, you know, which is which is one of three hundred battles, not one of. Um, and it's fun. Like sometimes I watch those, I watch those movies, those YouTube videos, over his shoulders where they talk about Easter eggs in those movies and things. And I say, I once worked on something kind of like that. <laughs> You know, he he still hasn't seen you know The Shining, or 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 Room Two Thirty Seven, but he sure as hell spends a ton of time, you know, watching videos that that you know look at things you know with that kind of fine tooth comb. It's like the resurrection of the hunter's eye, right? Uh, kind of like in the show Lost, when certain people were able to track, right, because they were able to read the environment. They had a they had reawakened that skill that was dormant. They were city people, and they might not have used it in the same way, but they get to this island, and now in order to survive, they need to pick up clues in their environment that are very specific and very subtle, but it leads them on a pathway. I guess I'm wondering, because the, the notion of the Easter egg is all over YouTube, and you're absolutely correct that uh, children and teenagers, when you ask them what their favorite TV show is, they say, oh, I just usually am on YouTube. You know, they uh -huh. usually just stick to the three minute to 10 minute uh, flipping through these little bite sized chunks. Um, but do you feel like there is a disservice to the audience member who goes out and sees The Last Jedi? And then after they see it, they go to YouTube and watch a 30 minute. This is what The Last Jedi was all about. Do you feel it robs them of what the work is or do you feel like it just sort of helps them to develop that sense? What do you think, Jeff? Well, it's like kind of like what I was talking about. The Shining and, and uh, Halloran is talking about, he calls the storeroom the story room. Mm -hmm. Now, one of my summations of, of Kubrick is that everything about him produces more story. Um, like you look, in, you look at a little look up a little detail in his one of his movies and then it leads to this whole like like uh 
interview you find on the internet where they tell the whole story about like some day of going out and doing research and this whole and actors names and that whole sort of uh rabbit hole that you got that people go down uh so i think there's an attraction to texts like the shining and like star wars that produce more story the more you read the more story comes out uh <clears throat> i think that that's that's a sort of a primal need humans have to to have more story yeah i mean uh, one thing that i'm kind of struck by you know these days you know is as a 20th century kid i lived in an environment of scarcity i think the first easter egg i might have caught was when um in twilight zone the movie in the vietnam section the soldiers are arguing with each other and one of them says we never should have shot lieutenant niedermeyer and <laughs> i had remembered from animal house that niedermeyer in the little postscript said you know was shot in vietnam by his own <laughs> and it blew That's my funny. mind to, to, to make that connection you know in landis you know had had that thing where every one of his movies I think talked about mentioned a movie within the movie called See You Next Wednesday. And yes. Yeah. It took years before I was able to, you know, track down, you know, a VHS copy of Schlock. And in Schlock, you know, the caveman go, actually goes into a movie theater um, that's showing See You Next Wednesday. Um, you know, to, so to see that he was referring back to a joke from, you know, his, you know, um, you know, micro budgeted lost first feature, you know, within American World in London and some of the bigger ones that came after made me both, you know, I thought was very funny, but I also took a sense of pride and discovery, you know, and by the same token, you know, when I was really getting into music in, in high school or in college, you know, it would take me years to go through a discography or to find a producer who I thought was interesting. And then I'm in a, I'm visiting a friend in Chicago for a weekend and I better get to their two or three best punk record stores if I'm going to, you know, find a new bin to dive in, you know, and then, you know, I find a, a rare 12 inch and I'm like, if I don't, if I, if I don't put my 20 bucks down to buy this now, I'm never going to hear this record for the rest of my life, you know, and that's just not the world that we live in today. <laughs> it's you're navigating through endless possibilities. God, I missed that. I mean, that was a Saturday afternoon. You go out on a hunt and sometimes you come out empty, but you know, you had a day, but then every now and then you find that prize and it could affect you for the next five years, you know, to just, to finally. It also uh, meant spending more time with each purchase, right? So it's like, I, I hunted down this album. This is my, I finally got to hear it. And now I'm going to listen to it over and over and over and really sit with it. Yeah. As opposed to, oh, he's got this album out too. Let me play it. Eh, that was all right. And, you know, <laughs> it, there was, there was, since there was no hunt involved, there was, there's no savoring it. There's no treating it as something special. Yeah, like ritual. I found a re I found a receipt of a CD I bought in high school, and it was seventeen ninety nine. This is nineteen ninety four, and this is a record that you've never listened to that you're hoping you're going to like. Yes, and you had it was just sort of like when you 
for lack of a better example, the first time you go to a porno shop <laughs> and you see how expensive these videos are and you're like, fuck, I got to spend $40 and you got to like <laughs> really spend time and say, how am I going to get the most bang out of my buck with this $40? Cause there's so much selection and it's just the same, same with music. It was like, it was you a, had to have it, trust in your band because you're forking out a lot of dough and you're hoping that that album is going to give you years of good times. And if it doesn't, you know, you really hold them personally responsible for robbing yeah. you. Almost. Yeah, well, and your collection is a finite thing that you know, that, that you know your friends are going to come over and look at it and judge you <laughs> based on it. As well they should. It was always a big divide in my camp of um, people who said they were in the mu into music, and I always said there was um, uh, I was part of the greatest hits generation or the the rise of the greatest hits generation. And they're like, oh yeah, I totally love um, you know Skinnerd, and they've got Leonard Skinnerd's greatest hits, and you're just like, <laughs> there's so much more. That's just really the first step into music. And oh, that's it, wasn't it though. That was the, that when you talk about that age of where this everything was so expensive. I reached a point where you, yeah, that was the safer bet. Okay, I'll buy the greatest hits first, and then if I like enough of that, then I'll go into some of the albums or something like that, right? That, yeah, that, there's a yeah, there's definitely a reason for that financially in the same boat, but if you become a better detective, um. I think you 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 say actually the greatest hits is a waste of money. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, it's it's it, the all these things we're you know we're talking about of like the different sort of time periods. I think this does go back to Bill your question of you asked, hey, does the kid who watches uh, Last Jedi or whatever and then goes home and watches a thirty minute YouTube is this helping or hurting him? I think this does kind of go back to that question. And I don't I don't have an opinion. I think I'm too probably too damn old to <laughs> to properly you know impose my answer on anything any new generation or anything. But um I think this is really a fascinating way of looking at it is with room two three seven in particular, you're able to look at a film that had plenty of time to sit and stew in people's minds. Um, yeah, well, and part of the movie, you know, is is one of the threads is people talking about experiencing it in different formats. Seeing it in the theater, seeing it again in the theater, seeing it on cable, seeing it on VHS, seeing it on DVD, and I think even Jay talks about getting the Blu-ray and, you know, the excitement of being able to, you know, pause and freeze frame, uh, you know, at, at at that new level, you know, we we finished too soon to talk about the 4K restoration, but um, the yellow or pink, yellow or pink. Yeah, yeah. I hear. Yeah, I, what hear the fuck? I hear the four. I hear the 4K is yellow again. It's yellow. Okay. Um. Yeah. Speaking of um, the environment in which you watch The Shining, um, I know that like. I remember watching a movie with some of my high school friends and for some reason I'm like, there's this movie we got to watch. It's called Midnight Cowboy. I, I don't know. You hear of a cool movie or something that's a little bit, you know, edgy. And then you go to watch it and your, your three buddies, they tune out after 15 minutes and yeah. it completely destroys your ability to actually enjoy the film. 
I'm wondering if with The Shining, when it was released in the theaters, if that first two-month wave or first month wave of people going out to see a Kubrick film, as as differing opinions and differing views started to spread and, and people made their decision on if it was good or bad, that maybe in that last few months you had those devoted detectives or those devoted fans who were going into the theaters. I'm wondering if that third time you saw it and if you saw it in a theater with people also seeing it in the second or third time, I'm wondering if the experience in the theater actually charged it in a way that made it different. Um, well, much in the sense that you think of a movie like The Exorcist where uh, people in that theater were passing out and throwing up and having psychotic reactions. Um, you know, it, I, I called the, the movie house an American sweat lodge, right? It was like everyone bundles in and we all have this shared experience in two hours in the dark. Um, and I'm wondering if Kubrick had a handle on or, or was as cognizant of that. I don't know, kind of a random thought. He must have been because uh, 2001's audience changed so much uh, over the course of its theatrical release. Yeah, yeah I don't think it like a... Um... To like take acid and be a hippie and go see 2001, and that that didn't have open, opening night. It was only something that, that came through word of mouth, yeah. word of mouth being like another accelerator and yeah. like this kind of uh, union with mediums uh, where you have... You have a, a cult film, and a cult film needs some a cult, a bunch of people loosely connected who are going to talk this thing up, who are going to be sitting next to you at a campfire or a bus station, you know, talking, talking jazz. Oh, you got to see this. There's this one part. And, oh, you have you ever seen 2001? You've seen the lights, you know. Yeah, well, they were, and you can well, see that reflected. I mean, Kubrick had, had made several films that have had this sort of like extreme reaction. I mean, he had to take Clark Orange off the theaters in the UK because he was so terrified of what like the copycat Yabos were going to be doing to his family. Uh, this had to, he had to have incorporated anticipating this, these kind of reactions and trying to orchestrate them in his later films. Yeah, well, I mean, they embraced that with 2001. If you look at, you know, sort of the marketing over over the course of its run, where you know, like the first the the first posters have slogans along the lines of a "fascinating voyage of discovery" before it becomes the ultimate cosmic trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I gotta say, it must have been absolutely mind blowing to. Um, drop acid at the beginning of that movie in the quiet peacefulness of that dark overture and then to start peaking right as moment <laughs> starts to enter and you have absolutely no idea that that's coming i mean even if you knew it was coming i can't even imagine what that that room became for those people it must have been absolutely bonkers well, I mean, my feeling about the Dawn of Man, the last time I saw it, or maybe the last time I was at a museum, like sort of um, kind of planetarium diorama kind of experience, was <laughs> in some ways it feels like a satire of the museum, um, you know, sort of evolution slideshow. But, you know, what if it was aliens <laughs> that came and, 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 and forced their evolution? But if we film it, 
like a science movie, you know, and we're really in our in a really sparse with a with a voiceover in the context and 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 just let people feel the environment of it. Because um, I know I know one thing that two thousand one was inspired by was like I think Douglas Trumbull might have even done the effects for it was like a World's Fair um, science trip to the moon or a rocket to the moon or something. Yeah, exactly. So I think well, how about Fantastic Voyage film had its influence. I mean, look at Fantastic Voyage. It's got the same like super slow pace, endless shots of preparation and 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 you know, like that's just kind of how you everyone understood rocket or space travel to be this like scientific laborious countdowns, safety checks and day, just like go out the door. Yeah. I, I think there's what something. The... Go, go ahead. Uh, I mean, before it came out in '66, so it's a couple of years before 2001, but kind of a similar format. Something I thought that really blew my mind uh, was I was watching um, that new IMAX documentary about, um, you know, about the uh, the moon landing, and. Well, it might have been that one, or it might have been for all mankind. But in either, in in in, in whatever case, they played some of the music that the astronauts were listening to during their during their mission. And there was a sequence where, at NASA, like this country musician showed up with his acoustic guitar and was playing country music for them in the capsule. And it was so much more like the experience. In that ship seemed so much more like Dark Star, the John Carpenter Dan mm -hmm. O'Bannon movie, than 2001. Even though Dark Star, in some ways, I think it was made as a satire in a correction to 2001. Of you think you're going to have that much space that the ship is going to be so beautiful and clean that the <laughs> astronauts are going to be so polite and professional? <laughs> yeah, I I was at an airspace museum. Uh, was it Lat? Last Christmas, it was last Christmas, <laughs> was it? And I saw a, the capsule that, you know, that the, the, they were in the and I was like, I don't think I could fit in this thing. <laughs> this thing is smaller than a PW bug. It's crazy. The <laughs> you can, you can like, like extend your arm all the way if you're in that thing. You couldn't be six feet tall. <laughs> Do you think that's one of Do you think that's one of the uh, more clearest statements of Solaris uh, Tarkovsky's uh, somewhat response to two thousand one of what life would be like uh, in a space station uh, divorced from uh, our Earth and home? Because if when they get when he gets up to the space station, obviously you know you can spend all day with the the science fiction elements but these people are not living in a very clean and ordered environment like these people are falling the fuck apart because yeah <laughs> they're in a box they're contained they are imprisoned and they're doing what they can to to deal with time in a confined space right and when are we going to talk about the bonus situation now uh, well before we <laughs> I was I just seen Alien a few times recently, and I, that was just makes me laugh. Like the 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 
like work class crew members are just on and on and on about getting about the bonus Christmas bonus. <laughs> Tell me, I, I'm not catching the Christmas bonus. And you know, uh, the the Gafkodo character and and the and the his buddy the Herodine Stanton character are hectoring uh, the upper deck members like Tom Skerritt and and Sigourney Weaver on and on and on about if they're going to get their bonus if they're going to get like a bonus for being on this on the space voyage and like there was the response from the characters like you're just going to get what you're what's in your contract but they keep going on and on and on about it and if you've ever been like in a truck with some dudes you, you've heard this conversation <laughs> <laughs> which i imagine space travels a lot like being in a truck with some dudes well, that's a big statement on the experience of 2001 in the theater, right? You've got all these people who pile into it, and that was obviously his original intention with the 162-minute cut, right? Is that um, you go into this box with all these people, and you're going to spend two and a half hours in there. Um, and at the end of it, you're going to like, you're going to kind of feel miserable. You're going to feel drained. You're going to feel almost exhausted. And, you know, I think there's almost a, I always associate the old man in the bed looking at the monolith as sort of like a lot of people like, all right, there's the door out of the theater. Back to our <laughs> life. Uh, there's no ball pop. <laughs> well, there's something, you know, uh, it's really hard for me to divorce 2001 and The Shining. Like they're so interrelated for me, uh, and I, I know you, you cover that a little bit in 237. John, you talk about the, like, apes at the start and Jack mm -hmm. at the end and the wake at the end and the wake at the start and all this sort of stuff. Um, I even realized with this one, I realized uh, where it's uh, Cox talks about how the typewriter is the German typewriter is the symbol of the Holocaust, and I thought, of course, you have in 2001 the IBM, IBM being the ones who, you know, they, they are the equivalent of the German typewriter, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's all this sort of stuff that's that's playing there, but uh, when you're talking about the uh, Rodney, you were trying to say the Dawn of Man as this science film. I mean, 2001 originally had what was it, like 18 more minutes of it that was basically an exposition dump, pure just like si interviews with scientists of like explaining how the rockets would work. Right? There was exactly, originally yeah. supposed to be yeah, all this. I, I think it's. Did that scream at like some early screenings before it I got think, removed? Like I the, believe um, so, yeah. Like, like the hospital, The Shining, and I mean, people talk about trying to track down the hospital scene from The Shining, but the end, the the deleted scene I've always wanted to see more than anything is the pie fight in Strange Love. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but but uh, just, it's funny sorry, that I just want to one go from a, a like a perceived parody of of. A science film to a definite parody of advertising in the uh, uh, Haywood, like the Haywood Floyd sequences. Oh, like with like, AT&T. Like everything's kind of like a madman environment of like uh -huh. hot consumerism. And... Well, I just uh, so where I was kind of wanted to go with this thought is to say, in 
2001, he, so everything is done as this very scientific, very clean, uh, and even, um, gosh, what is his name? Uh, Dave, Dave Bowen. Dave Bowman is, he is this really almost like robotic. He's the perfect soldier. He's the perfect, he's, he's a pilot. He's, you know, even in, in the, as things are going to shit, he's staying completely calm and in control and structured. And it's almost like, uh, 2001 is like this, this, this analogy makes sense. 2001 is like air force and, Things like Dark Star and Shining and all this stuff is more like Navy. It's like, this is what it's really like to be on a ship for, you know, two years. Whereas 2001 is like, you're this laser-focused pilot that's just, you know, it's, it's a completely different sort of um, ideal of what, what, what are these, these realities. Um, and there's something about 2001 that I still, to this day, have a disconnect with because of that, of like... The idea that Dave Bowman becomes the ascended man and gets to see beyond the infinite and all that sort of stuff, to me, doesn't speak to what a, an encounter with the void is for most of us. <laughs> um, you know, the encounter with the void for most of us has us screaming like apes, uh, like Jack Torrance. I mean, I, I don't think that, uh, I think that Kubrick picked up on that as well. And like, I mean, look at the changes he made in his career after that. Migo from sure, showing, showing the imperfection. Orange, yeah. where it's just like Yabo City, everything sucks. Like, you know, like you're in a prison, you're in England, it's gray out. The only thing is, <clears throat> is great is like artistic rape you know ascended man concept to like yeah. absolute opposite of like degraded humanity and willie and bowman is also like the closest thing to a good-looking action uh, action hero a successful action macho hero that you get after paths of glory no like, I think for the most part, the protagonists are um, much are incredibly flawed outside of um, outside of those two guys. Yeah, and even in Paths of Glory, he gets we do see him in the shit, and we do see him, um, you know, having passionate responses to things. He he doesn't have the the, the cool collected. Responses yeah. to things. Yeah, and he's, he's not an ideal. He's surrounded by yabos. Yeah, well, it's also I think one of the most effective anti-war movies that I've ever seen. That um, imagining anybody enlisting after that is kind of mind-blowing. But around the time that I was working on Two Three Seven, when I was teaching this editing class um, at a at a film school, there was. You know, there were, a lot of the students were on the GI Bill, so they were um, guys who had just come back home from fighting in the Middle East. And at a certain point, I forget, at, at the end of a class, some of them started quoting Full Metal Jacket. And, you know, I asked them, 
did you see Full Metal Jacket before or after you decided to volunteer for the Marines? And they kind of laughed about it and were maybe a little embarrassed, but he said, no, I was, uh, I saw it before I joined. And I was like, oh yeah, did it dissuade you? Did it make you think twice at all? I was like, no, nah, if anything, you know, it, 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 um, it, it, it encouraged me, which kind of blew my mind at the time. But, you know, maybe in hindsight, you know, a teenager wants to go out and, you know, sort of have some insane adventure, you know, and go through some sort of cauldron of fire and come through it sort of changed on the other side. I think um, John Waters writes about it in one of his books that for him and his crew, you know, it was making music, making art, making those movies, you know, but he saw sort of a similar thing reflected in, um, there was that Manson, there's that Manson girl that he was talking to. Um, and it certainly made me pause. So maybe that's a, this could be a moment for me to ask this, and I'm, I'm going to preface this uh, with a really specific, un, this is different from how we would normally do things. Rodney, I want to be very clear. If you want, if you don't want to answer this question, or if you want to answer on the record or anything like that, I would totally remove it, or you could just say, hey, man, I don't, whatever. Um, okay. I'm not sure to put you in an awkward position as far as anything goes, but I have a, a really serious question. For me, you know, of all the, I spent the last, gosh, I don't know, you know, 10, 11 years working with crazy people on the internet and, you know, entertaining different theories and all this sort of stuff. And uh, for me, there came a point of a, a situation of like, I don't know, by being so close to that, there was a sense of like ownership and responsibility for did I promote these folks? Did I promote their ideals? And when you're talking about, say, like this, Kubrick's trying to make an anti-war film, but it might, in fact, encourage people. Um, I have to think about, I, I've just done so much of replaying the last decade in my mind over and over again and seeing how things went and, and all this sort of stuff. And I know for a fact that a guy like Jay Widener got a lot more of, shall we say, a platform. He was able to use Room 237 to kind of for boost his, I don't know, credibility, if you will, and went on to say, I don't know, I, what I would consider a lot more dangerous things than Kubrick faked the moon landing and, and I see you know, his face in the clouds and shit like that. Um, I, I guess I'm curious where you stood as far as like ownership of that, of, of, of promoting these folks. Do you have any regret about that? Do you feel like you needed a crack pot? And I'm not sure words in your mouth. So again, you know, but did you need like, the outlier or did you need this and, and just one last detail to throw into that is even when i was so excited your film coming out 
and then seeing like the New York Times reviewed it as this is a film about various conspiracy theories. And I and I, every yeah. time I hear somebody say that, I it confuses me because it's really only one conspiracy theory is Jay Widener. Everything else is just sort of film criticism or theory. Where is the cons- how is everything labeled a conspiracy theory when there's just one guy? So how much of that? I'd just be curious if you'd if you'd be willing to speak to those ideas of ownership of of yeah. promoting these folks and also just how it maybe paints the rest of the film in a specific direction. Um, well, I guess I'm not exactly sure where Jay has gone. The last the the last of his stuff, you know, that I read were about it was sort of an extraterrestrial thing called Archons, which. I just kind of couldn't get my head around, so I sort of moved on. Is he into... Uh, is he into QAnon sh- kind of stuff? Or I don't know where he's at? at these... I don't know where he's at these days. I lost track of him. But sh- shortly after all that stuff, he went... Um, uh, it, was, it was just basically like really pushing like this, uh, you know, the Islamic terrorism angle that everything was like we had, we had to worry about Islamic people. And then uh, I think when the Archon stuff went in a direction, he went, uh, there was a guy, gosh, what the fuck was that guy's name? It doesn't matter. But there was another conspiracy theorist around that time uh, that they were sort of, oh, John, John Lamb Lash. They took this idea of Archons, which is a, it's a, it's a really old Gnostic idea, but they sort of, started skewing all this stuff into um, basically like the, the classic like anti-Semitic, oh, who's running the world? It's it's these powerful elites yeah. that just, it just, it's just, it's the classic sort of spiral. I don't, I don't want to put words in yeah. anyone's mouth. Um, but I just, well, watching his trend over those few years after, and again, I, I did stop paying attention, but I, I do know that he was able to use the sort of name recognition. Hello? Yeah. Just yeah, so, sorry, well, I just I said I know yeah. he was able to use name recognition as a bit of a platform. So Well again, I'm not really sure what I, I can't speak to what Jay's been talking about. After that Archon stuff, I kind of um lost the lost the thread. But um you know, I guess I'm conflicted about it, right? I mean, I even talking about Full Metal Jacket that way, that doesn't mean that Full Metal that I'm against Full Metal Jacket, that Kubrick shouldn't have made Full Metal Jacket. You know, I think it's, you know, a fascinating and powerful movie and it's one that I've enjoyed that I enjoyed watching, you know, a half dozen times. Um, that making a making an anti war movie is the hardest thing in the world, right? Like movies love war stories. And can't even I think the thin red line at the end of it made like that what was supposed to be you know like a futile effort to capture that hill you know kind of exciting at the end. Um, so I think that's you know the, the biggest challenge in the world to actually to, to to pull that off. And I don't necessarily grade other people's movies on um, how well they advocate for a social political position that's important to me. You know, I'm, I'm a fan of plenty of movies whose themes I disagree with. Um, you know, the platforming thing is, is again, I guess it's just something I'm, 
I'm, I have unresolved feelings about. You know, it's when I find subjects or people or stories that are interesting to me. You know, I imagine that they're interesting to other people. You know, I, I mean, I think you spoke to, um, you know, 237 being called a conspiracy theory movie, which was is just as weird to me because it's we spend about seven minutes, if that, you know, in a movie that's, you know, well over an hour and a half, it's close to an hour and 40 and everything else is symbolic interpretation of a of, of a of a popular piece of art. But you can't really. Well, it's, you know, like with Kubrick's experience with, the you know, Kubrick made The Shining and then us and, you know, an endless number of people, you know, have our two cents about what it is and how we want to talk about it. So I can't exactly complain when people talk about my stuff in a way that's not necessarily, you know, how I would frame it. Um, you know, in platform, I remember growing up as a kid, you know, I'm, uh, you know, a middle class um, Jewish family, you know, living in New England. For us and for people in our community, the Jewish ACLU lawyers who fought for the neo-Nazis right to march in um, Skokie, Illinois, they were, you know, considered heroes that, you know, defending speech uh, defending unpopular speech and speech that you disagree with is the whole is the whole point of freedom of speech. Popular speech doesn't need a defense. Though I, so I think when I was a younger man, you know, I was kind of a free speech fundamentalist. Um, and but you know, especially the past four years, watching where things have gone has shaken that a little for me. And I've seen a couple of people deplatformed and that it worked um but i don't know that i necessarily have um have landed in a place that's you know super um that's where the concrete is dried right <laughs> um you know in 237 i thought it was you know if, if one of the lenses that people look through look at the shining through his conspiracy theory that felt, you know, kind of fascinating and kind of of the moment. And in hindsight, I think it was, I stand by that choice, right? That conspiracy theory is one of the lenses, maybe more than ever that people interpret, not just, you know, movies, but the news and, and, and the world around them. And, um, I don't know if that, if that answers your question, but, um, I think it's essential to the experience of that film and of Kubrick's work. And I think that to label it conspiracy thinking is to label a type of thought process that has not fully yet arrived. I think it's the growing pains of an inquisitive mind in a modern society that is overwhelmed with information. I mean, if you haven't experienced paranoia or um, some detachment, um, in this world where you have radio, TV, film, book, newspaper, I mean, we are inundated with messages that are penetrating our consciousness without our choice all the time. I mean, fuck subliminals. We, liminals. I mean, we are just bombarded by messages and symbols and shapes and everything. And so I think that in order to um, sublimate that part of ourselves, you do have to go through some conspiracy type thinking. I mean, 
the greatest conspiracy in your life is your own self. I always imagine, at least for me, I'm the one who does more damage to my uh, success than anybody else because of fear or all the other different emotions that we deal with. Um, but yeah, I, I think that 237 shows that conspiratorial thinking uh, in a movie. Uh, I mean, Kubrick encourages that. I think he encourages that you have to spend time with this piece of work and you have to do the work and you have to, because when you get to that end, like, like I was saying at the beginning, when I'm 14, I'm like, this is a long, boring movie and I don't understand it. And then when you break through, you automatic like I automatically then have this connection to my childhood self and I can have a better understanding of who I was and where I was and what my, you know, what I wasn't able to actually, um, cognize on my own and it, it's that's what i think kubrick is trying to produce with his works is something like a bible something like a monolith something that appears in your life at different stages and you can track your growth through time based on how you see it and i think widener probably at his age needed to go more for the celebrity angle with this movie and probably felt like this was his chance to establish himself on the internet and maybe build one of those uh, identities that could lead to book deals and maybe to additional movies. So I can understand a, a person, and this is, you know, obviously, I don't know Jay personally, but I, I just imagine in his age, at his position, that this was a chance for him to maybe strike it big and to capitalize on the audience that is out there that, like Alan says, there is an audience out there that you could capitalize on their fears and on their paranoias because if you just wanted clickbait and you wanted internet traffic, you could feed them what they wanted. It's an easy population to string along. I mean, just look at Nibiru and Planet X. Like, that was a thing for, like, <laughs> for years. Like, oh, yeah, Planet X, Nibiru, it's going to happen. And there are all these dates. Like, you can play that game. Um but I think well, it was a disservice of the film critics to then associate the four other motherfuckers with Jay. That was the failure. I think that was the hot take of the established movie critic who was threatened by, like, where are these people seeing this? Is this in here? Do I have to spend time now and go rewatch The Shining? Or do I have to, in the moment, just say, oh, Jay Weider's crazy. This is, all, this is just gibberish, you know, like Leon Vitale said. He said, this is just J – Kubrick would hate this. It's all gibberish. And I thought that was the most false statement out of all the reviews that I had ever read. Yeah, well, I mean, two things are, first off, I mean, Kubrick was – interested in conspiracy i mean think of dr strangelove in how much how, how much talk there is of fluoride in the water on behalf of, much so. general, of general ripper and you know eyes wide shut there's a whole secret society you know that's operating behind the scenes um that gets together for these that, that gets together for these sex magic rituals um, normal, very normal <laughs> but but also i mean vitaly i met vitaly um at a festival and I mean, I like him a lot, and he did some Q&As with us, and he never, I don't know if he necessarily renounced what he said in the New York Times, but I remember he, he stood on stage next to me and said, anyone's opinion is just as good as anybody else's. And well, that's good to hear. And I've, I've done two projects with him since. He's, um, you know, and, and if you saw that documentary about him, 
you know, my gosh, he's the, you know, if you're a fan of what Kubrick did, you know, a lot of it was, you know, it would never have happened without, you know, Vitaly working in 247, you know, for years behind the scenes to make it happen. He uh, reminded again, me of I was, I, was I was thrilled for him to denounce the movie. I mean, if anybody is going to um, talk trash about it, you know, let it be Lord Bullingdon or, you know, the voice or the voice of Red Cloak. Um, what better, what, be what, what, what better enemy could you possibly have? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's it's good to hear that I I did not know that he had appeared with you on stage and had done those Q and A's because, to me, that that quote in the New York Times just speaks of the hot take that people had. That's what's so great about Room Two Thirty Seven. It just threatens so many people who think they know what they know, and it challenges them on the spot to make a black and white decision. But you don't have to. Yeah. Well, no, and, and, and a funny thing is, I mean, you're saying, oh, um, you know, that you're calling Widener the odd one out, but there are a lot of people who, um, you know, will pick. A, I, I've 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 read each person being called, you know, the most the, the most right or the most wrong, or in some or in some cases, people have picked things that one one thing that Jay said you know, as on the money and while dismissing the moon landing guy, not realizing because at a certain point we dropped the lower thirds that it was the same person. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. But... Say that again for me. That there's that, you know, I've seen everybody picked as, a, as the, as either their top or least favorite by different writers, mm -hmm. but I've also seen Jay picked as both not realizing that a different, when he was separated, one one different parts were separated by a few minutes that he was the same guy uh, <laughs> okay that's good yeah blake mark cox and whitener all had similar vocals i i confuse them at times yeah so here's something like um what hit me you know you talk about like, like with that the the sound so like uh i really love how this and I and I oh you also did this in uh, the nightmare, where you're not showing faces like it's an audio based um, interviews and you're just you know kind of you're not seeing who it is that's speaking right, mm -hmm. and um, John we used to speak to you like uh, you know so so regularly around that time and your your uh, son used to always be like shaking little plastic keys or cars yeah. against the table and hearing those sounds that when I watched Room 237 and heard that in the film, it like it hit me on such like a personal level and it really drove that like playgirl scene just like it just was mind blowing in that moment of like, holy shit, he's literally talking about um, you know this the father and son dynamic and oh hold on, let me go, <laughs> you know, hold on, I gotta go stop my child or you know not discipline you know and all that sort of all that in there and i and i watched again last night like that scene hit differently for me because i think just like from the, the time it passed and it was more as like the just an audience hearing you know seeing that it wasn't or maybe it was the uh I, I, don't, I don't know what it was but there's something about the different audio cues that you get from the different speakers um and there's something so unique john about you're the only one that's really 
laughing. You're the only one that's really, uh, you know, exploring all these different ideas. You're you're saying, yeah, sure, there is this conspiracy idea. Yeah, there is all these other ideas. I'm just curious where where do you sit with that? You know, this sort of time later. Um, where do I sit with what? Uh, just just sort of like having the the overview and um, you know. I'm talking to you. This is probably the first conversation I've had with you where I don't hear a small child in the background. I mean, he's not small. Well, sure. Yeah. How old old is he now? Wayne. Oh, he's uh, he's 12. Wow. Holy shit. Okay. He's busy. uh, He's making his own films. (laughs) uh, Loves video games and this, you know, teenage, tweenage boy. It's great. I see uh, Julie Kearns, her son, makes films, too. So it's like... Yeah, uh, yeah I, I've kept up with her. I mean, she's an gr- excellent diarist. I mean, her Facebook is great. It's all just hilarious stories of just being alive in a city and her reactions to everything. And uh, I've, I've had a lot, of, a lot of fun with her writing. Um, but... If I, I mean, and I had a lot of fun with my son sort of stumbling into like film history, you know, <laughs> through, through like, uh, you know, what was a really, really mild uh, afternoon uh, crying for mom or whatever. Uh, but like everyone's reaction to it was like, and it was the same, it was like a happy accident. It just sort of like hit on all these different levels, and I thought it was great. Um, and like that it like it it really like people like re- some people thought I was like was going to the other room to like spank him and all this crazy stuff and you know I I got called a schizophrenic in uh, the comment section and I, IMDb and all, all this all this wildness um, and it really concentrated around that scene but it's sort of like okay here's sort of like a hip postmodern you know thing in a movie you know which a hip postmodern director is going to leave in there because it's that movie magic. And I kind of knew what it was, but like there are people who really need to need an answer. This needs to be a needs to be B. We need to get that. We need to know what A is. We need to know what X means. What is X? No matter what, no, no matter what the truth is. And that's, the movie Room 237 kind of like was like a stick smack in the pool and you saw the ripples go out and everyone kind of revealed themselves. But it was early in the game. Like we, when Room 237, you know, we didn't have QAnon, we didn't have Trump, we didn't have uh, Sandy Hook yet. Things would really accelerate after... uh, uh 2012 to get to the point where like the notion that there are conspiracies out there is so charged now it's like front page news and then but but back then it was like something that was in the underground and the fact that room 237 even hinted at it or even like involved people who like knew people that were involved in like wild (laughs) conspiracy theory it was like a party movie it's Here's a bunch of bunch of kooky kooky characters. Bang! Check it out. It's Hollywood, you know. Uh, and everyone like 
you know, freaked out. But now that, you know, now that time has passed, I, I saw it came up on, I'm on part of a really crappy uh, Facebook group called Incredibly Strange Films, which re- review films that are not incredible nor strange. Oh, that group is nor terrible, have, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I, just, I just like, well, I was, uh, sure. let me just see peanut galleries up and you know it's the same thing it's like the bottom line they were like hey remember two, room 237 they're like oh yeah it's all about the, all, all this conspiracy theories and the the guy laughed <laughs> that's just the bottom you know people got elevator pitch version that they were looking for back then even though they weren't given an elevator pitch they were given like you know open loose-ended experience you know, multiple streams going, you know, this way and that way. The audio disconnected from the video. Yeah, I have to say, I, I love, that is still like on my a favorite. Level two, room 237, two levels, just independently of each other. But most people aren't, aren't ready for that. So, like, when we were experiencing synchronicity, uh, People were people in the synchronous uh, sync community. Well, Alan, you 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 can you can talk about it. like there was there was a time when like everyone was sharing information. And then it came to a point where like everyone had to pick sides and go go to a certain place. Do you think that's fair to say? Uh, you know, I, I, to an extent. I mean, I, I I really resonated with something Rodney said earlier in answer to my question of. I used to be the absolute free speech fundamentalist. You couldn't shake that from me at all. And it was only in the last, you know, I'd say probably five years that like that really has been shaken. I really feel like I don't know so much that everyone had to take sides. I I, I feel like uh, I, I get what you mean by that. But I also I think I might be coming at this rather than, ooh, I felt forced into taking a side, I almost wish, I almost wish I had taken more of a side. I almost wish that I had, you know, exerted more control over something instead of, oh, trying to make a space for everybody to say whatever the fuck they wanted. And then I was like, oh, wow, these people are saying some crazy shit. You know, and I like, did I help? Did I? Um, I don't know. I it it really it just it just shook me. I have to say, the last few years have really kind of shaken me in a lot of different ways. And I, uh, I gosh, I long for the days of just being able to talk about synchronicity. And um, I really have tried to keep that focus, uh, like through literal conversation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, once there's like, literal like, Nazis, it gets harder to. Yeah. <laughs> literal <laughs> Nazis on the moon coming down. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, but it, it's like there was like this sort of like extending of consciousness and like like practiced. Like it was a martial art, like in the sort of heady days of uh, early uh, teens or whatever. 
you know, like where the Joe Alexander found the whole like 9-11 connection to Back to the Future. And everyone thought everyone was like, oh, this is great. You know, like it was hilarious. It got a million views, you know. And then like six months later, it's just. You know, well, John, Trump like you were saying, you said everybody loves more stories, right? Everybody yeah. wants to go deeper. And um, that's what I think Room 237 um, showed you how it was almost like a training manual of how to go deeper. Um, I, I would imagine like it didn't do that for me, but I could I, I think I felt that from a lot of people that it was sort of like much like a like a cosmic trigger book where you stumble upon this book and all of a sudden it it says, I want more of this and I'm going to interact with my environment in this way because I want more synchronicities. And how do you generate more synchronicities? Because that's more feeling, it's more story, it's more, maybe as Americans, that's what we, we're obsessed with is, is the wealth of it all. Um, but I think there was definitely a move where people started to kind of take on maybe guru ship of how to generate synchronicity or where synchronicities are pointing to you because really i think alan can probably speak to this more than i can but there was i think it was like i don't know 2015 where politics really seemed to start to just dominate every conversation in that community and battle lines were drawn and tribal identities were formed and it's probably inevitable to any culture in any community, but it really seemed to um, cement my thing of like, all right, I'm leaving this group. I'm leaving this group. I'm shutting this down because it's just, it's not what I'm in it for. And did you yeah. kind of agree? Do you see that kind of, do you sense that same thing? Or do you think it was always, it was always there. I just didn't see it. It was it was there, but you didn't see it because you were you were looking for that multiplicity. You were looking like you were looking at the multiple streams. You're looking at the multiple layers and <clears throat> marveling at that. But we're unfortunately like blind to the fact that there were straight up Nazis from the moon in your midst. <laughs> <laughs> Nazi golfers and, from the future. But, but they showed themselves serially as as like the events as the you know as, as horrible world trauma started to crop up more you know at a pretty steady clip. Uh, I don't know I don't know how good uh, highly detailed film analysis goes hand in hand with like actual current event traumas that are happening right now. Well, don't you get the sense that news is news entertainment and that we we don't have a singular stream? Maybe we never did. Maybe that's my uh, failure to notice. But news is entertainment and news is driven by returning next day, returning next day. And uh, it, it, it seems to fuel uh, just QAnon and um, some of the more, I don't know, paranoid theories uh, on what's really going on right now uh, it, it has to have there has to be 
an element in the news entertainment world where they know about that and they're provoking it because it just drives internet traffic. And let's face it, it's all about internet traffic at this point. Well, like those IMDb comment boards that would go on long and, and you'd see those threads in certain blogs that would have 100, 200, 300 comments. Well, if you can get that kind of stream in a news site, then that's every click is is a monetary value. Right. And it's better to lead with something before you know what it is, because then you can always retract it or always have. Uh, a response to it instead of hold on the story let's find out what it really is and then release it it's not as fun or not as uh, lucrative well is it it's kind of amazing that was it 40 plus years on that there hasn't been a better more powerful follow-up to network (laughs) as far as 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 far as a, a cynical look at the news you know sort of chasing after uh, chasing after viewership at all costs. Um, and I think legally there may have been a few things that happened too with, was it the fairness doctrine in the eighties? I'm kind of, I'm not really a student of it, but I think that that might have, that, that, that might be responsible for some, some big changes to network news as, as, as well as the rise of the, the 24 hour cycle. Um, but Hey, I, I get, let me give you a heads up. I think I've got, maybe 10 more minutes in me before I need to take a painkiller and go to sleep. Yeah, no problem. All right. Can we, then before you go, I appreciate the heads up. Before we go, can you speak, you've got a new film out and uh, I I first off just want to ask, you know, I love your specific style um, and I'm curious if it's a consistent, if Glitch in the Matrix keeps this current this style that we kind of know you for of like uh, faceless interviews and these kind of reenactments and these uh, found footage and all that sort of stuff. If you'd speak to any of that, but also just tell us what the film, tell us what the reaction's been, and give sure. us the lowdown. Well, you know, it looks it, it it looks a lot different from the other two, but I think its tone is pretty similar, and it would be, you know, if. If, if if you know those other films, you'd recognize this one as kind of of a piece, you know. Um, you know the aesthetic of it is all digital, you know. Since you know we're talking about virtual worlds and you know and computer generated realities, and you know it just sort of start. It actually was inspired by one of the guys in the nightmare um, after we finished filming, told me that in his understanding. Or or made something that he was sort of starting to think was that when he would see these shadowy figures while in a bout of sleep paralysis, that it might be seeing through the simulation. And at that point, I don't think I, that would have been like 2013, 2014, 2013. I don't know that I necessarily was familiar with simulation theory as as an idea, you know, I'd seen the Matrix and Existence and, you know, had my fill of science fiction stories that talked about the idea of, you know, people trapped in computer generated worlds. But I didn't know that, you know, there was an, that there were that there were real people who believed it and that some of them were coming from, you know, really high level, a, a high level of science. 
you know, that there are people like Nick Bostrom and even like Neil deGrasse Tyson who would take it seriously and talk about, um, talk about it both in sort of these three-part logical um, uh, hypotheses as well as the science of what happens at the smallest and the largest magnifications. Um, you know, so that kind of percolated with me for a while and and at a certain point, you know, I just kind of got sucked into, you know, these sort of stories. It's another internet heavy project where reading people's stories of strange things that happened to them that made them convinced that, you know, we were living in some sort of digital simulation. So the film started, you know, just on that notion of, well, let's talk to people who um, who believe it very strongly and get our heads around these and, and, and get our heads around these stories. And then at a certain point, maybe this is sort of a departure that they're the people that we talk to, there's sort of two categories, right? There's people who um, people who've had people who've had experiences that have you know sort of changed their idea of how the world works. And then there's a couple of sort of color commentators who can speak more, more clearly to um, the religion or the philosophy or the, or the science or the history. Um, it's a pretty long-winded way to talk about it, but, you know, it's a, a 237 nightmare version uh, take on simulation theory. And at a certain point, we talk about the Matrix, but this is not, a you know, a a deep dive into the, this is not an equivalent look at the matrix like 237 was to The Shining. Do you feel that there's a natural progression from 237 to Nightmare to this work? Do you, do you, do you see a yeah. pretty, yeah? Well, I mean, it's an expansion, right? Like what does a piece of art mean? What do your dreams, you know, uh, your nightmares, the supernatural mean? And then, you know, what is the world? Right, it's like a, a widening of the of the of the lens. Yeah, I sense that as well. Um, I personally feel that simulation theory is just something that's lost in translation. That if we could just spend more time with it, we could realize that we're just discussing a very old thing that is being reflected in the newer technologies. And my brain naturally goes to uh, Telhard de Chardin with the newosphere. Uh, that there's this new environment for consciousness to exist in. And really, we're just dealing with uh, a globally connected environment that we are all in and out of several hundred times a day. Um, but I will reserve judgment until I see the film. Yeah. I'm excited for it. Yeah, well, I mean, your, t your, uh, your take is different than folks in the movie, but certainly the idea that this is a high-tech way of talking about a very old idea is you know one that we you know address you know very directly within the within the project and how yeah. will people be able to see this film well when... it's gonna yeah at the end of january it's gonna premiere at sundance and sundance this year is largely virtual where you know i think it's probably going to be sort of a pay-per-view experience where you where you um go to their site and sign up for a ticket to watch it on TV. And then a week later, you know, it'll be pay-per-view on 
all the usual uh, all, all the usual sites. Looking forward to it. Oh, so like uh, come February we can stream this ourselves. Yeah, come Feb, come like the end of the first, like February fifth or sixth, I think. The oh, wow. date on the the date on the end of the teaser is um, you know, there is is when it goes on, you know, when when it goes, you know, for pay per view, for uh, Amazon, iTunes, you know, what what have you, or if if there there's a virtual cinema thing too, where like if there's a a good art theater in your neighborhood that a lot of them will be you can buy the ticket through their site and then they get then you give them the money and they they get their piece instead of it going to uh bezos oh awesome i, I that's a, something i would be happy to support <laughs> <laughs> real last quick question ronnie it just came sure. to mind what do you think of the future of movie theaters based on this last year and where we're going it's crazy right i think we're, we're certainly at an inflection point um you know there's i don't know for sure you know but there you know there's uh, you know there's good and bad futures right there's the there's the there's the bad well there's the worst version where they just go away because people don't feel safe and whatever the next you know disease to come around the corner is or they just get bought up by you know the big uh, by, by the big studios and they're just each chain is you know sort of the a week or two before it hits uh but before it hits the streamers but i love to think that you know it, it, it'll be more of a, a boutique experience where um maybe the expensive stuff all goes to streaming and it's sort of a return to the indie and middle class at um um you know at at you know sort of at theaters that are more like alamo or nighthawk you know what have you um absolutely but your 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 guess is as good as mine you know the next year or two is probably going to change uh, uh, the, the, are, are going to change everything may even be in for you know a return to a, a return to the drive-in you know pop-up drive-ins i don't know i went to i went to an actual drive-in this summer yeah, where? Oh, uh, it's called the 49er. It's in Northwest Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw the Spider-Man movie. But they've been, they've been doing the same drive-in style since the 50s. So, like, everything yeah. is, like, popcorns and, like, old old, old songs. And, and yeah, well, well thing is... But, but like, in, in the middle of the, the pandemic, there was definitely an element in the audience who were like, oh... I'm at a maskless rally. <laughs> all right. Everyone here is yeah. friendly, but they're all Nazis from the moon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I can, I can imagine there being a, a dark alternate Nazis from the moon experience in a movie theater where it's a, where it's a space for like maniacs to be brave and express uh, antisocial behavior. <laughs> well, my like a like a sequel to Joker or something, you know, something. <laughs> <laughs> you guys know Will Morgan. Um, he he told me, like he used to, was at, at the point where he was going to a movie theater like once a week pre-COVID, and then uh, in the last year he told me like he's gone just like a handful of times, and he's like he's really one of maybe two people in the whole theater anytime he's gone in the last year. Yeah. I mean, now that we've 
we've got it and recovered. I'm like, I want to go to the movies right now. Oh, they're closed? Damn. I was like, didn't want to go to them when they were kind of half open. But now that like I have antibodies, I'm like, kind of like, well, now I can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a superpower. Yeah. Well, and actually, Sundance is going to take over uh, the LA drive-in for a week. So we're going to get to we're going to get a screening there, which will be a huge amount of fun. Thanks for joining us today, Rodney, John. Sure. Good to catch up with you guys. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. It's so nice to hear you guys. And um, I wish you the best of success with the, the new film. And um, yeah, just uh, good luck, both you guys feeling better. And I'm really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us again today. It's been way too long but it's uh it's really personally uh comforting and and just really really good to hear your voices again Agreed. thanks well good to, good to talk to you take it easy happy new year happy yeah, new year happy new year. hey john yeah so i just if you do you have just like maybe 15 minutes i can throw you a few just questions if these mean anything to you things from uh the shining i don't know how mo how much any of this is still present in your mind but i mean i i reread i reread my uh kdk 12 recently so i'm it's fresh cool. in my mind okay. so um are you cool with that i just want to throw you a few quick questions sure uh so i didn't realize till recently um, my lady pointed out to me there's the scene with the whole like the spilling of the avocado. Oh, yeah. Right. So just before the spill, a woman walks by and she's got like this bloody handprint on her ass uh -huh. on, on the dress. Have you any idea what that's like? Is that referencing something? Is that an, is it actually a handprint? Is it? And it's a really specific I question, but for the sequence, I remember. I remember someone someone's blog pointing it out. I don't remember who's maybe Julie Kearns or someone else. Um, I mean, yeah, if you don't have anything specific to say, but I just I was just curious if you had done any looking into that, because that was just, it's just something that was like it's something that I had never noticed before and was like a new one that popped up for me. I was doing a lot of like cross, like checking the same, checking the room, checking a, a room's contents over, over the course of the film, like obsessively, like looking at their apartment a lot and the arrangement of chairs in their apartment. And then but it was kind of colliding in with like dealing with, a more thorough investigation of the super uh, forwards backwards super imposition. So those those the scenes in the gold room where there are ghosts there are kind of related related to uh, uh, Wendy fretting alone in, in in their apartment. To me, what does the handprint mean? Anything other than than a maybe it's a visualization of, of Jack's uh, lust, lust. Like he's down there. He's got the you know the red-handed 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Caught him red-handed fantasizing about like uh, meeting meeting new women. I always thought, you know, because like, the avocado certainly resembles. I'm so, I'm sorry, I interrupted, but uh, Kubrick's daughter's in that scene. She's one of the uh, one of the party guests sitting on a couch. I'm not sure where we're going with this, but. Well, I I think like the avocado. I Leclerc had a pretty in depth. Uh, thing about that scene and the connections going on there and uh you know jack wanting to belong and be part of this gold room party right that he wants to be a famous writer and be part of the best people i mean that's obvious and but you know what goes on at those parties is that there are disposable people and there's there's actions going on and it just seems that with the blood that bloody hand and the semen like fluid that spills on is that this overlook hotel is host to these parties where disposable people just like an eyes wide shut are um are just used for certain purposes and that it's so blasé that this woman could walk out of a room with a bloody hand on her dress that's worth you know $3,000 and not even notice. And no one would even really pay attention to it because it's not something that is that they're afraid of in that environment, in this Colorado getaway where the best people uh, entertain uh, certain people. And it's a damn shame that Claire's writing isn't up anymore because I think he really went in depth into that kind of uh, dynamic there. but. That's what I remember of it. I also remember in one of the Breaking Bad episodes where they had the twins and the axe in KDK-12 that there's a, there's a red hand on a rock. Oh, the, uh, the two twins who wear like flashy suits and like chop people up? Yeah. I love those guys. <laughs> uh Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the, the sort of Breaking Bad, KDK twelve, and there there's things in Hannibal too, uh, you know, scene references. It's just it's just hip, hip filmmakers just being hip. Well, if we just you want to keep it to that whole uh, Tarantino thing of, of just oh it's it's a movie I like I'm gonna put it in my movie that I like that I'm making because we're movie makers and we're just. Yeah, I I got lost uh, that, down. Of like highly dense '90s culture, you know, Generation <laughs> X point of view. Yeah, I got lost down a rabbit hole of reading reviews of uh, Ready Player One and Ready Player Two, and just tearing apart like how horrible the the writing is, but it's just like nostalgia fests and all this sort of stuff, and uh, how just basically the, the how lazy we've gotten as far as accepting that a wink and a nod to a previous artwork is not the it's not the same thing as writing a good story <laughs> you can make you can make a nod to a thing without just being like that's it you remember this other yeah, story but, wasn't that great <laughs> it's like but it's part of that like more story concept i was talking about totally you know, yeah we're gonna have a story but we're also going to put references to other stories in it and then there's the subliminal stories, and then, then there's the, you know. But there's there's maybe a difference. There, People can do that. 
like maybe maybe the what Rodney was talking about earlier with John Landis. I mean, I assume that he knows that it's see you next Wednesday is a line in two thousand one. I mean, the whole thing's like a in joke about a censored dirty joke in like an innocuous scene in a Kubrick film. But then he like extrapolate extrapolates that into this huge thing that just keeps resonating and coming back because his comes his own joke, yeah. His reference was so obscure and so personal and so odd and charged with the you know, sex charged. Like it's this pornographic screen screenplay he wrote, you know, it's a C U N T joke. It's uh um but maybe it like kind of destroyed his life, you know. I mean, his career is over. He killed people, and wasn't sorry about about it. And Hollywood didn't like it. He killed. But is people. that like like a super successful Breaking Bad, like hip cool TV, and you know they're they're making nods to Kubrick, but it's kind of, is it isn't it just like kind of like the same thing that uh, what Toy Story guy. Uh, Lee Amrick is, is up to, you know, just sort of. Uh, I don't know, because, you know, like the Niedermeyer joke, you have to have seen Animal House to have got to have extracted the humor of that line in Twilight Zone, right? Yeah. You don't but, see it if you haven't seen Animal House and you don't remember that. So the connection isn't made. I think that when Breaking Bad has I'm those. Saying, I'm those, saying that, that, that Landis's reference is on a magical is on a like a magical level like ultra high end but dangerous like but what the breaking bad guys and and are up to is it's just a movie reference it's just like tr- putting a kind of tarantino sprinkle on like a cool hip crime movie you know I don't know. I I, I don't think so. Uh, I spent enough time with that show and track the different references to The Shining, um, especially when you lead up to that episode where he goes to get the money in the basement and there's that shot of him laughing hysterically and his face is framed by that um, that entry point into the uh, the crawl space. Hmm. And it directly mirrors, you know, the framing of Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining that he's come to the end of his road. And there's this, there's a lot there. I, it, 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 to me, I think to make it, to put the shining in there is a clue or it's, it, it's a call to say, look deeper, keep looking at this. You know what okay. I mean? The cover story is entertainment and it's huge, which is amazing. Right. But what we're really trying to say is the thing that we can't say on public television. Um, and there's, there is a subtext to Breaking Bad that goes a lot deeper than just, you know, the mythological blue meth. And it goes into a lot of the addiction issues in America and who the real Heisenberg is. And mm-hmm. I think I would have never gotten there had I not seen those hooks in like KDK-12. OK, that's one thing. But then the next thing you see is twins. Okay, that's another thing. And then you see an axe. Okay, that's another thing. Now you see this red hand. It's just pummeling you. It's like, keep making the connections because when you make that one extra connection, then you get the energetic that opens it up and you can start to see what I'm really trying to show you. Um, I think it's more of a technique for filmmakers and writers who came up in an era of 
for lack of a better term, uh, Christian, the Christian neighborhood watch that had a real strong ability to shut down projects if they didn't like certain things in their movies. So you had to, you know, it, I, I grew like, up in a city. You got to tell me what, what are you talking about? The Christian neighborhood watch. You don't know about the Christian neighborhood watch. My, my uh, barber, when I was a kid, told me that I shouldn't play Dungeons and Dragons. That's about as close as I got. Well, let me just say this. Film ratings, PG, PG-13, R, and X, do you think those even fucking matter anymore in our world? Um, Your son has probably seen R-rated movies at his age, right? He's seen a few. Right. He's probably stumbled across X-rated, triple X-rated, and incredibly strong pornography, not maybe in your presence, but in someone other, some other friend's presence on their phone, right? You got, he spent the past year in isolation. Well, I'm just <laughs> saying, uh, not your son in particular, but kids, there used to be at least a stronger um, barrier that said you can say things here but you can't say things here but there was a reason because you were protecting certain people who shouldn't be seeing those things and i just think that when i say the christian neighborhood watch there was a sense that there were eyes watching and people who could shut down a project if you tried to say things that they didn't want you to say and i just feel like people who grew up in that era they felt that that was they might have 50% 50% understood that that was protecting your artwork and protecting your career. But the other 50% of them had experienced artworks with that, had experienced uh, Easter eggs and correspondence and felt, oh no, wait, all great directors have this rabbit hole into the real story, right? And I think they incorporated it as a technique uh, as much creatively as it was uh, financially or protective of their career. And, uh, I mean, I mean, what if it's actually required of them? Well, that's, right. you, know, that's you can, make, you, can make, you can direct Breaking Bad. We're going to let you do it, but you're going to have to reference the shining in episode eight. Well, I mean, I this think that the reference, this is the reference. <laughs> I can entertain it. I can entertain anything, but I, I just knowing, um, like, What's like the, name the actual director of Breaking Bad, inner circle Hollywood people act would actually sit down at a meeting and be like, "All right, you're going to have to have these symbols in the movie, or you're out." Yeah, I don't know. I don't really think that with the case of Breaking Bad because uh, the he, writer, who's the writer of Breaking Bad again? Um, ah, he did X Files. Breaking Bad. The guy who did Sopranos did Mad Men. I think that's Wiener. But the guy yeah. who did X-Files did Breaking Bad. Uh, Gilligan? Yeah, that's his name, I think. Um, Vince Gilligan. Yeah. And, I mean, for God's sake, he wrote for X-Files. You know what I mean? Um, you talk about Easter eggs and implanting narratives within narratives. Uh, it, it's it's part of the DNA of that guy. And I don't think anyone would ne- necessarily need to to infringe upon his creative process. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen somewhere in Hollywood, but I think that a guy like Gilligan, his whole progression is that he owns his own show. He gets to do whatever he wants, but he's still going to continue to uh, populate 
his shows uh, with portals into other areas that he can't talk about directly. Uh, especially when you're attacking fast food, Coca-Cola, and candy, and cigarettes, you know, the bulk of advertising for television and marketing. He's attacking fast food. I mean, if anything, like... Oh, he totally is. Uh, that's what that show's about. The Gus character is, is seen as a positive character by the people who watch the show. The people addicted to drugs in Breaking Bad are in the chicken. The rice is in the cigarette. The gun is in the Coca-Cola machine. What do you think those scenes over in Germany where they're getting the very integral component, the chemical component to the meth from the German fast food guys who are making the dipping sauces that they're going to sell to Americans? Um, The billionaires in the the drug war or the the addiction industry in America, it's it's not as much meth as it is wake up in the morning, drink your coffee. Go get a, some salt and some fat and some sugar at McDonald's. Then have another cigarette. Then tonight, got to have my ice cream. That's the addiction industry. That's what he's pointing to in that show. But he, you can't sell a show because that's not sexy. So you make Heisenberg with his blue meth as your cover story. But it all points to the little um, nickel and dime addictions that lead to heart disease, that lead to diabetes, that fund the whole healthcare industry. And it, I, to me, it's pretty pretty clear after a while and i i'm i'm pretty sure um gilligan would agree with me um yeah but what about those nazis on the moon they're there and they love the bad guy yeah i mean they're seeing this they're seeing this cool tv with a different point of view and that point of view is like Okay, I'm going to learn from Gus on how to kill people and be a good manager at the same time. Well, the world needs good managers, that's for sure. <laughs> like all all it's Breaking Bad is a crime movie, so it's all about it's a how-to on how to how to be a, how to sell drugs. Well, last point on this fast food thing. There's a there's I mean, a one episode where he goes back to the guy he worked with. He worked with uh, the guys in Gray Matter, right? He knew that couple. He had his girlfriend, and then there was the dude, and uh, he sold his share of Gray Matter, right? And yeah. he started his family, and Gray Matter went on to become a billion-dollar corporation. So he goes over to their house for the guy's birthday party. He hasn't seen him in 10 years, right? And so he's at this big mansion. What's that? Everyone's wearing beige. Yes. And him and his wife come in these gaudy fucking party outfits. And he brings him a gift. Do you remember what his gift was to the guy? It was like something that he thought would be like a, oh yeah, it was a bottle of wine maybe. It was a package of ramen noodle soup. What? (laughs) So now think about this. The company is called Gray Matter. This thing that he hands to me goes, remember how we survived on this working all those hours? It's this brick of white. It looks like the white matter in a brain, a brick of ramen noodles. But really, yeah. it, all it is, is just a fucking carbohydrate and salt injection that is, gives you an instant jump, right? It's not food. And is now considered, no, no, it is food. And not only that, it's considered hot food, the height of food. You could spend. I, I had a thirty dollar bottle of ramen the other day. 
we're talking about fast food. We're talking about 99-cent uh, bricks of ramen noodle with that weird packet that is – you know what is the number one currency in prisons around this country? Culture Fucking ramen noodles. <laughs> That's the number one form of currency in prisons is ramen fucking noodles. I'll trade you three noodles. Let me get some of those noodles because it's not food. It's a hit. It's like a cigarette. It's a fast food that mirrors a kind of amphetamine. It gives you a drug-like effect. And so it, MSG. MSG. I mean, my God. But it's, but it's also like it's tools that students use uh, to get through. Because if you're going to be a student, you're going to have to be, live this sort of weird hedonistic ascetic lifestyle where you you have to kind of party your <laughs> like every student I when I was playing let's say playing music at colleges and would meet college students who were the audience they were all doing Adderall they were all snorting lines of Adderall and they were explaining to me that they'd you know, they got this stuff so they could do their homework, you know. So, and this was, uh, this was like 15 years ago. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't even dare to think what, what, what kids are doing now. <laughs> Adderall. They're still doing Adderall. Have you ever done Adderall? I did it with these college kids. <laughs> I wrote a 15-page paper in 10 hours like, on Adderall. It saved my you know, fucking life. I feel like doing some work. <laughs> it's like, I'm exactly. Not, yeah. Gosh, uh, all, all the sort of symbolism of, of uh, fast foods and, and getting their sort of hit, getting their fix and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it really, to me, it speaks to um, what is at the heart of the shining of and I was again having just watched two through seven again last night. It's like seeing how this film can be exploring some of the I don't know sort of the darker whether whether it is the Holocaust or you know suppression of the American Indian um, or you know, abusing you know uh, Jack really abusing Danny or it's or even just. Um, I mean, just go with the just go with what King said it was about alcoholism. Sure, yeah. Have the I mean, cover story be the backstory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just there's something where it's like we're really struggling with something as as a society, and all these individual struggles I think are you know, really speaking to that that same bigger picture. Um, yeah, point of view point of view is more important than anything and people are ready to die for it wear a mask i'm not going to i don't want to wear a mask i don't care if i die you know <laughs> I, I see it in the suburbs of illinois every like every day yeah so i uh earlier today there's there's this guy in my neighborhood uh just like two blocks over that has you know flying this huge Trump 2020 flag uh, in front of his house how many months, right? And we've been having this conversation of like, okay, at what point does that flag come down? You know, like, it's, <laughs> like, what is it going to take for that man to take that flag down? And today is the first day 
that I noticed. I'm like walking and I said, oh, shit, that flag's gone. There's something else in its place. And I walked over to see what it is. And he's replaced it with a flag that is a basically it's like a white flag with a pine tree on it. And it says an appeal to heaven. And are you familiar (laughs) with what this is? It's basically it's um, so I had to I had to look it up. I I was <laughs> it's basically um, it was something from the American Revolutionary War that is a uh, quoting John Locke. It basically says it's saying, "Hey, when you've made an appeal to the kings no longer possible, the next step is the appeal to heaven." Basically, it's 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 um it's speaking to the right to revolution. So it's saying, "Hey, we've exhausted we've exhausted our you know dealing with men. The next step is throwing it out for God to sort out. We're going to take to arms and and let God sort it out." Um, so I, I went on some interesting sort of uh, websites and down some interesting rabbit holes to see what. You know, who's using this flag and stuff like that. And that's, you know, it just sort of speaks to, I don't think we're out of the woods just because whatever, whatever, at some point we have to, they'll have to accept the results of this election. The, the, the hurt feelings will not have gone away. Their Nazi tendencies will not have gone away. Um, we we're still the losers that have to keep America clean, right? Um, I don't know. It's a uh, it's interesting. I you know I I didn't want I don't want to go uh, too far in that in that direction, but I do want to this this sort of reminds me of something else I wanted to point out. So uh, we watched my lady and I watched um, the nineteen eighty three movie The Dead Zone. Yeah, that's um, hilarious. We just watched it. Uh, Two nights ago. Oh, fucking awesome. Okay. So, did maybe... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just watched it uh, within, within the week. And um, so I didn't... I, I was like, okay, interesting. It's another Stephen King adaptation. I didn't realize... So that's 1983. The Shining is 1980. Um, and, right, he's dealing with the whole, like, oh... Um, uh, what is that guy's name? Um, the, the the politician, the Martin Stilson. Sheen, yeah, Stilson, right? Um, who goes? I was like, I said they should have. Uh, just as a private, just as an aside, I made the joke. I was like, I wish in the season finale of The West Wing showed <laughs> that uh, <laughs> Martin Sheen was really that politician <laughs> all along. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. But, like, <laughs> but uh, so something my lady points out, she says, hey, did you notice when he goes into the kid's bedroom, um, there's the young boy that he goes to tutor. It's like the rich kid from the hockey team. And uh, Christopher Walken walks into that kid's bedroom. And the first thing you see is this Indian headdress on the wall. And then behind the kid are these like, three rockets they're like basic fighter jets and then there's another scene where those a different variation of those planes are behind christopher walken i think it's actually an earlier scene 
And she was like, it's really weird. Like, why are like these like rockets behind him? And this is before we had rewatched Room 237. So last night we rewatched Room 237. She goes, you know, I can't get over. I'm still thinking about those like rockets in the background. I'm like, is that a reference to something? Is that? And it's. Go ahead. I I had a a similar thought on a different thing. Uh, We were in the car the other day and. And we got we got a new uh, serious channel. Uh, it's called Booze. <laughs> it plays like bar rock. And we heard uh, Guns N' Roses doing Rocket Queen. And I, and we we're kind of like, what's this song about Rocket Queen? And I was like, this is not about much. But it's definitely like <laughs> because like no one talks about rockets anymore. But there was a time when people were thought enough about rockets that I'm just going to throw it in there. Rocket queen. <laughs> Nothing to do with, it just says it's like a sexual metaphor. You know, Kiss had a song called rocket ride. She wants a rocket ride. She wants a rocket ride. It's just trash, but it's rocket, rocket USA. I mean, in the sixties, the idea of going in space, you got there by a rocket. That's not the case anymore. No one talks about rockets. Like, even is, though they're going back to the moon again, like you got a uh, yeah. As I say, what is what, uh, like the Elon Musk's um, you know launches or you know once every two months we see shared around Facebook some clip of a rocket either blowing up or oh look they guys, tried to do this you know new rocket guys in trucks talk about that guy all the time. Guys in trucks are obsessed with Tesla. Yeah. It's funny you you had that you so you and I have a similar maybe a similar perspective of like what it's just a car it's a fancy car to them and also the promise of infinite money like his stocks the stock of stock is like never enjoy up sure it's the American dream I'll. I can have all the money in the world. I can have the coolest gadgets. And uh, it's like you're half James Bond, you're half Batman, but you get to, you know, buy whatever girlfriend you want. And <laughs> Yeah, Grimes. Yeah. <laughs> and their baby XYJ or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> oh, so cool. Uh, it's you know what's fascinating funny. about Tesla is that, do you know how many restrictions there are? about tinkering with that car and with that battery like it's it like you, it's like john deere right you cannot like modify or buy separate parts like everything has to go through tesla so if you want to like do anything creative with the car that you bought you've got to like find buy another tesla and work with those parts or find like damaged teslas there's like a lot of shit going on with that technology John Deere, you know the the tractor manufacturer, farm equipment, does the same thing. It's like you you can't fix it yourself. You have to take it back to them. Like the in, the engines are locked. You don't have the key. Exactly. That's not what you're buying. You're buying the machine. You're not buying the knowledge of the machine. Remember that story of Saddam Hussein had like a thousand PS3s hooked up to make this like supercomputer. Am I imagining that? <laughs> I don't know, but I had a, I had a, I bought a, maybe it was a PS2. I had it in like the, the noughties. 
and it was like the DVD era, era and like you bought the DVDs, all the DVD players broke or they wouldn't play certain DVDs, but the only thing that remained after that sort of wave of digital junk was the was the PlayStation. Would play anything, like even after it stopped playing the playing the the games, it would still play any any digital media you put into it. <laughs> yeah, they said the processing power on those machines. They were sold at a loss just to get the product out there. They just like, I think they put a Blu-ray or some shit in there, and uh, the, the rumor was was that you could they were linking up these PS3s to 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 build a, like a really fast processing supercomputer. And I imagine that you know Tesla he, he needs to protect uh, those batteries because I imagine if you had two Tesla batteries, you could probably run all your electricity in your home through those batteries easily. <laughs> yeah well what's funny is i keep seeing uh this video game just came out uh cyberpunk 2077 yep and the <laughs> they keep referring to the ps4 as like what do they call it uh last gen technology like oh well mm -hmm. it's not it doesn't work on the ps4 because that's you know that's last gen technology and it's just funny to say like, these things that are like, yeah, they are really powerful machines. But to be dismissive of them at this point of like, oh, well, of course it doesn't work on that. You know, it can't handle our. It can't handle the permissions. <laughs> right. It's just about you're buying permission. I mean, that's what Apple Apple is now. It's like, well, you need to mm -hmm. you need to buy a machine and then we'll give you permission to use it <laughs> yeah seeing people talk about you know the different uh what what it takes to get not just as you say the permission for the device but like that we're even going to run this on our machine so like from the software side I, I spend a lot of time now in like uh, facebook groups for game development and uh seeing people who are like oh okay um there was something happened this year where Fortnite tried to push back against the Apple Store, and then Apple pushed back. And there's so so there's all these sorts of things happening behind the scenes of who who wants to control the technology from that sense. And you need our permission. We we you can build whatever the fuck you want, but we still it's going to be on our device, and we get to still want to set the rules there. Or uh, that's the sort of Apple side, and then this. Uh, cyberpunk side of being like, hey, we wanna, we wanna put the blame on the on the other devices and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. It's just it's so fascinating to me seeing these sorts of little skirmishes that I think guys our age probably think of as being over. You know, of like, well, we re we've reached a point where the the Competition, the competition of technology development doesn't seem as obvious. It seems like a lot of those have been won, um, but they're still very much ongoing. Go ahead. What were you saying? I mean, I'm holding a thought, but it's it's it is fascinating when you when you see these. 
and also because of the movies, like these petty arguments over like, I was like, I can't, I can't believe that there just isn't, you just can't just turn on your computer and then just see what you want direct from the studio. The fact that there needs to be a middleman at all is, yeah, is hilarious. <laughs> like it's, it's been obsolete for decades, like this middleman concept, but it's still there. But I, I guess it, it's that important. It's that important to people to have a middleman that they'll, you know, destroy their own their own world just to make sure that they have it. Uh, but to me, like as as a Gen X cat, like I just see the word cyberpunk twenty seventy seven, and I'm like, didn't, shouldn't this have come out like forty years ago? What what's going on? Well, do you know who the protagonist is in that game? Never it's Keanu Reeves. Yeah, so it's like it's it's sort of like off off brand Gibson, you know. <laughs> this is this is an this game has been in development for eight years. They've been dropping. I mean, sure, it's not like thirty five years or something even lamer. Like, <laughs> well, just the amount of detail and the amount of immersion that these worlds are. I really feel like this is just a punk to uh, young kids. Is that I don't really see consoles existing past this PlayStation 5 and this latest Xbox. I don't. Does anyone buy physical copies of games anymore? No, they just download them from yeah, we, the internet to this box that stores it as memory. Games, but uh, we 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 bought little chips for a while, but then now it's just all digital. But now it's like, okay, there's a game I want to play it. How am I going to play it with the person I want to play it with? On what format? And how can we exactly. talk to you? So it's sort of like you need a phone and and a copy of some we need permission. But other than that, the game just the game exists somewhere, the players exist somewhere else, and it's the middleman sucks. <laughs> well, we'll find out in February how this syncs up with uh, simulation theory. Yeah. Yeah, I I I I'll uh, I'll have to see the film. <laughs> 